Hello and welcome to another episode of the Barefoot Mediator podcast, news and views from Jane Gunn and guests. In this episode, I speak with Ken Cloak, who is a fellow mediator and author of Conflict Revolution, Mediating Evil, War, Injustice and Terrorism. We speak about why mediation is the skill that could help global society cope with the collapse of systems and create a paradigm shift for a brighter future. So welcome, Ken. Thank you for inviting me, Jane. Well, Ken, it's I've been so excited because I think this is probably the third podcast interview we're doing together. So we're we're creating a series here <laughs> and uh, always fascinating to catch up with you on how both of our thinking is developing about conflict and mediation skills. And I know last time we spoke, I think would have been back in 2020, probably when we'd just gone into um pandemic and lockdown and things. Anyway, for those that haven't heard you speak before, Ken, just give us a little bit of background about who you are and what your work is and what your passion for your work is. I guess it's useful to say that I have been in practicing conflict resolution now for over 40 years. Yes, This will be my 43rd year. And my practice has been kind of eclectic and uh, widespread, including lots of work in other countries, mm. uh, everything from divorce and family mediations to neighborhood and community mediations to complex organizational disputes, uh, conflict resolution systems design, environmental disputes, uh, mediating public policy conflicts, workplace and school conflicts, etc. Lots and lots and lots of all of those. Almost um, every sector of society, really. Uh, yeah, I think in the beginning, because there were so few mediators, yeah. there wasn't really much of an opportunity to specialize. Uh, you had to be a generalist. That's right. And that was a bonus for me, because what it revealed to me was the linkages between the various fields and aspects of conflict resolution. And so part of my passion is to look for symmetries and synergies and what I um, call scale-free practices, meaning that there's something similar between what happens between two kids who are fighting on a playground and the heads of nation states. Absolutely. I totally agree. Yes. And I think what we need to do is to figure out what those linkages are. Mm. Uh, what the, the symmetries are. And the reason we need to do this is because the political system that we now live in, wherever it is that we live, is confronting uh, problems that can no longer be solved using either military force or litigated forms of resolution. Indeed, problems that can no longer be solved by individual nation states. Absolutely. So, so, mm. No, so we're looking at some need for collaborative problem solving across the globe in a way then, Ken. Yes. Mm. So many years ago, I uh, came up with an idea, uh, which is that uh, it's really a definition of conflict, which is that conflict is simply the sound made by the cracks in a system. Mm-hmm. And that conflicts accumulate along those cracks. And what they represent is the evolutionary limitations of that system. That is the inability of the system to adapt, learn, evolve, uh, become better at solving problems. And so systems get frozen. And the difficulty is that we we become attached to them. But the more conflicts begin to accumulate, the more the signs uh, become clear that uh, some kind of paradigm shift is taking place. And we know that this is true, for example, in marriages. When conversations become stuck and people can no longer get 
to a place where they're able to solve the fundamental problems that they're facing within that relationship. Because people resist doing something new, they become accustomed to old things. Uh, they're frightened of the new. Uh, all of those things, uh, plus a series of others, begin mm. to arise. Mm. And so we can also define conflict as the voice of a new paradigm waiting to be born. And if those two things are the case, then if we look at the world around us and we look at the problems that we're facing in the world, we can see that fundamentally there are cracks in the system and that conflicts are accumulating along those cracks and that a paradigm is waiting to be born, some mm. new paradigm. Mm. And the question then becomes, what is that new paradigm? Mm -hmm. So uh, from my perspective, and I, I see many people commenting on the same thing, is that there are many systems that are breaking down, whether it's the banking system, the political system, the healthcare system. If we look at those as systems, each of them seems to be on their last legs, really, uh, in many respects. So are we looking, Ken, then, do you think, at... Uh, an overall paradigm shift. It's not just paradigm. It's not a paradigm shift in each of those systems. It's a paradigm shift in the global system. Is it that we're looking at to be able to? Yeah. Yes. Yes. I think. I think you're absolutely right. I think that is what emerges from this. Mm -hmm. And then the difficulty is to then try to figure out what are the elements of that new paradigm that we are looking at. Yes. Here we have an advantage as mediators and conflict resolvers. And that advantage is that the system in which we operate, if, if we take a look at the, if you will, the kind of the, 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 the way that that system operates, we can see that contained within it are some of the elements of what needs to be contained within the other systems that are not working. Mm -hmm. So, for example, we focus on listening yeah. as a core skill. Mm -hmm. And what is it about listening that is important? And the answer is, when you are dealing with a complex problem, you need to listen to it carefully in order to recognize its complexity. And the problem is that the most of the institutions that you were talking about do not listen very well. In fact, they are what we could say defended against listening. Yes. And the more hierarchical and dictatorial uh, and bureaucratic one becomes, the less one is inclined to listen mm -hmm. because listening has a politics and it is the politics of equality. Mm. It is the politics of non-hierarchical, or rather, if you will, heterarchical, participatory, consensus building, mm. uh, the politics of collaboration, the politics of we're all in this together, and let's try to figure out what we're going to do about it. Mm. And that doesn't mean that there are natural hierarchies but it means that the project of a fixed hierarchy whose purpose fundamentally is domination, we can see that in a variety of different places in life. And if we simply think with regard to healthcare, uh, COVID, any number of different things that we are now having to grapple with, if we ask ourselves the question, if we took the solution that is being proposed and translated it into a marriage or a family, mm. what would happen? Mm. And the answer in most cases is it would fall apart. Yeah. And guess what? It's all marriages and families. And it's all falling apart. <laughs> yeah. So the what we the the difficulty with that is that that is a form of complexity. Yes. So there are two really fundamental varieties of complexity. First, there is the complexity in which there are many different parts, um, array fixed arrays of elements, living beings, 
even on computers, what are called cellular automata. And then the second is that there are what are called complex adaptive systems. And that's about how systems confront what exists outside the system, mm. how they become aware of it, how the system as a whole learns and adapts. And uh, therefore, there's a kind of ecological uh, orientation. And I think that we have been missing this in virtually all of our work. We in the United States are right now upset with China mm. because it uh, put a spy balloon um, into orbit uh, over the United States. But all of the commentary, first of all, ignores the fact that we're doing exactly the same thing to China, spying on them uh, from very great heights, but over their airspace. Mm -hmm. But secondly, and most importantly, um, where exactly is China going to go? And the difficulty is there's nowhere for any of them to go. Ukraine's not going anywhere. Russia's not going anywhere. The United States is not going anywhere. China's not going anywhere. So we have two options. We can compete to the point of even potentially annihilation, or we can figure out how to get along with one another and how to solve our problems collaboratively, mm. recognizing that we are different. So women and men are different. Uh, every individual person is different. And so any marriage has to be a relationship between people who are different, who have to figure out what they're going to do with those differences. I like the term yeah. conflict resilience because we don't necessarily, as you say, reach a state of being the same or thinking the same or seeing things the same. We have to learn to live with our differences and live in dignity with our differences. Yes, and even better than that, I wrote a book uh, with Joan Goldsmith several years ago called Resolving Conflicts at Work. Mm. And chapter seven is called Learning from Difficult Behaviors. And there are a series of things that we learn from difficult behaviors. One of them is to give up the idea that everybody has to be the same, yeah. that other people have to be the way that we are. Mm -hmm. um, and a second is the point that you're making, which is to figure out how to get along uh, with other people. But there's a third one, which is deeper, which is to actually learn more about yourself by being in the presence of someone who is completely different from you. Mm -hmm. And this, I think, is a part of what makes every really powerful relationship work. It is the curiosity about differences and the re recognition that the self isn't something that kind of exists in the abstract. There's a phrase for this, which is that the smallest human unit is not one, it's two. Mm. And we are now at a population of 8 billion people on the planet, and we are clearly headed in the direction of some kind of profound ecological collapse with climate change, with um, environmental degradation, with a whole series of things that are demonstrating to us um, that you can't prevent COVID in one country. And you can't do it only for rich people mm. because the virus is going to mutate and mm. it's going to mutate wherever it is that you haven't paid attention to it. Mm. So it's fascinating, I think, that you say we have to listen to the problem. I'm not sure we ever listen to the problem. We may learn to listen to other people. You're also saying we need to listen to ourselves. And I think that listening to the problem and listening to ourselves are two layers that perhaps we don't pay attention to or don't learn the skills for. So there's three levels of listening there. And maybe we only pay attention to one of them and maybe that one even not very well. 
Yes, I think that there are, we can uh, have a kind of, uh, in a book that I wrote called The Crossroads of Conflict, there's a kind of a list of the various forms of listening, mm. uh, ranging from hearing, yeah. which is that you can hear the other person, but you're not really listening. And teenagers mm. know how to do this quite well with their parents. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> and then there is um, involved listening, participatory listening, Mm. Uh, there are a variety of different forms of listening. And the one that I think is the deepest is what I call committed listening. Mm -hmm. And committed listening is listening as though your life were about to change as a result of what you are about to hear. Yeah. And that is really the first step. Listening is just step one. Mm. But it's incredibly important because everything else follows from it. And then after step one, it's important to dig deeper. Um, and what the digging deeper means is um, trying to figure out what is actually being said. Yes. What the meaning is, not only of what people are specifically saying, but what they're not saying. Mm -hmm. What's hidden between the words. Mm -hmm. And then trying to figure out what is actually the emotional meaning and significance. What are the feelings around this? Because we're not just communicating facts. We're communicating fundamentally what it feels like to be treated in a certain way. And mediators have great uh, experience uh, with this kind of listening. And then there's this deeper listening still, which is listening for what the interests are yeah. that may never have been spoken, mm. uh, but yet are present mm. and trying to figure out what those actually are. Mm. And then trying to see whether there isn't something in the problem itself where the two conflicting perspectives are capable of integrating and creating something new mm. that is giving rise to something synergistic, something genuinely transformational, something that changes the whole thing. And I can't tell you how many times this has happened yeah. where people come in and one says A and the other says B and they continue saying A and B and A and B and nobody's moving anywhere. And then all of a sudden C arises but it only arises within the dialogue, within the conversation, mm -hmm. as a result of the listening, as a result of the fact that there has been a kind of polarization that has developed. But what we miss is, if we look at the North Pole and the South Pole of the Earth, for example, magnetic North and magnetic South, uh, they're completely opposite, and yet they're united along a line of magnitude. Mm. And so what we are looking for is what is it that unites people along the line of their differences? Now, that's something that has absolutely no relevance whatsoever to politics as it is conducted today. But wouldn't it make sense uh, with regard to politics to do something like that? So again, I keep going back to the, these books, but uh, I wrote a book called Politics, Dialogue, and the Evolution of Democracy. Yes, and the, I have that one. <laughs> oh, good. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, the basic idea is to redefine politics from an interest-based perspective. That is from the perspective that we use in conflict resolution, which are what are not not just what you what is your position, but what are your underlying interests? And underlying interests can be connected without anyone losing. They are not a zero-sum game. And this is the fundamental proposition, which is we have to move beyond the zero-sum game. It's the that's the zero-sum game is the language of hierarchy, of bureaucracy. Yeah. Of, of military force, my way or the highway. Mm. One um, person decides. Uh, and what we need to do is to figure out how to get both people to decide. But that's way more complicated. It requires much higher levels of skill. 
Yeah, and and critical thinking, Ken, and I I totally agree with what you're saying, although I I feel that we are sliding in the opposite direction, uh, certainly in terms of politics, in that we very much exist in a top-down sort of autocratic system now, where even speaking up is not not, um, welcome, And therefore, how do we shift? Because I don't see the willingness to listen or even open things up to debate. Now, there are many things happening and we're just looking at the moment at initiatives in the UK, um, in Oxford in particular, near where I live, on 15-minute cities. Um, And what we're getting as a consultation is, uh, oh, there was a form online. Uh, did you not see it? You know, uh, did you not fill it in? We're not being welcomed to having uh, an open dialogue and debate that uh, encourages and invites everyone to participate. It's rather, you know, we did a consultation, four people happened to see it and they filled in the form. And so therefore we've ticked the consultation box rather than let's, as you say, let's listen to the problem. What is the problem we're trying to solve? Because there clearly is a problem, but what is the answer? And maybe the people themselves have got some fantastic ideas if you ask them, um, rather than one person somewhere having an idea that's being filtered down through various other sub-organisations. So I, I I agree with everything you say, Ken, in that it, it's wonderful if we can create interest-based dialogue. But how do we get there? What, because there seems to be a roadblock between the system that we have or the systems that we have and this ability to have participatory, collaborative dialogue, which we both know from our work at all these different levels, and both of us have worked at um, many, many different levels, including with government departments and so on. But how do we encourage these skills, these systematic ability to to look at systems in this way to come into play? Because we're they're, they're not they're not there at the moment, are they? No, no, and I think you've expressed it really well. And this, of course, is the problem where there is there are multiple solutions. Mm. And I'd like to just give one example, Mm. Um, because it it doesn't just extend to the kind of. um, uh, How would you say it? The structure of the system, it is embedded in the language that we use. So, for example, we talk about the solution. Yes. But what about these solutions? Yes, multiple solutions. Multiple solutions. And then which one are we, do we, fits best? Mm-hmm. Which one are we going to try out first to find out whether it works best? Yes. Um, that's an illustration. Here's another one. I was invited by a political organization in the United States that was in the last presidential elections supporting various democratic candidates for president of the United States. Mm. And they were all vigorously in favor of Democrats, but they were all in favor of different Democrats. So some of them were uh, pro-Bernie Sanders, and some were uh, pro-Joe Biden, some were pro-Elizabeth Warren. And as soon as anyone said the word Bernie or Joe or Elizabeth, all conversation stopped. Mm. everybody knew exactly what everybody else thought. There was nothing more to be said. And so they were falling apart because somebody had to come out of this as the one candidate, but nobody knew how to have a conversation about how to do that. And so I came up with a series of questions for the organizers of this group. And here were the first two questions. Mm -hmm. Question one, without mentioning the name of the candidate that you support, what values do you believe your candidate stands for? And question two, how could we use those values in this conversation to help us have a better conversation about what to do? Brilliant. So... Those are just the first two. 
and then there are a series of others. And the important part of it is to shift a way of thinking. And one of the ways of doing this is by asking a question that cannot be answered hierarchically. And one of those questions, for example, is how do you feel? Yes. Another one is what does that mean to you? Mm -hmm. Because these are all questions that are different. Here's my favorite way of describing this. For the people who are listening to your program or watching your program, there are three questions that we can put to that group of people, three categories of questions. Mm. Category one, who is the oldest person on this call and who's the youngest? Who's the tallest? Who's the shortest? Who lives the closest to downtown Oxford? Who lives the furthest away? And there is only a single correct answer for everyone to each of those questions. One correct answer. And the answers are arranged hierarchically, automatically, simply as soon as you say, who is the tallest and who's the shortest, who's the oldest, who's the youngest, you've created a hierarchy. Question number two, category of question number two, how old are you? How tall are you? Where do you live? Now we have a single correct answer for each person. Category of question three. Um, what issues are you facing at whatever age you are at? What does your height mean to you? What did it mean to you growing up? What do you love about where you live? What do you not love about where you live? And now all of a sudden we have multiple correct answers for each person. Mm -hmm. And isn't that by far the more interesting and useful conversation? So the difficulty has been that in order to maintain privilege and gain advantages for oneself, one's family, one's clan, one's class, one's country, whatever it may happen to be, there has been a need to essentially, as you were saying earlier, silence certain forms of speech. Yeah. In the first place, by disregarding it. Uh, in the second place, by actually silencing it. Mm. Uh, and we are now confronting world leaders who are doing more and more of the second. Why? Because they know that a paradigm shift is coming. Yes. And they're afraid of losing. Yes. And the truth is, Yes, individually they will lose and collectively we will all gain if what we are describing here is correct. And so I guess can moving on is the and and what I'm sure the listeners will want to know is what can we as individuals do to help this paradigm shift and actually help it to manifest in a positive way? Mm -hmm. I think there are several things. First, learn conflict resolution uh, and practice it. These are life skills. And so I recommend to everyone that they uh, practice mediation um, and also that they practice meditation, yes. uh, which is a little bit different, but it has the impact of uh, helping us realize that the world is a more complex place, even the world in, inside. Uh, number two, to look for ways of bringing interest-based processes into the public sphere. So, for example, in every city, there are all kinds of zoning disputes and community disputes of various kinds. And virtually every one of these can be handled in either a bureaucratic, top-down, single correct approach, uh, and it's mine, uh, kind of fashion, or a collaborative, somewhat sometimes messy, dialogic process in which people come to terms with the fact that there are differences, yeah. and then come up with solutions that work, because they are synergistic, because they come from a place that is more informed about all the various alternatives and combines them and looks for ways of improving them and is willing to give them up if it doesn't, if they don't work. And that's why 
I think what we need to do is we need to have uh, much, much more dialogue that critiques the language of politics. If you take a look at the Brexit debate mm. uh, in England, you will find a polarization of language around it. And the polarization is not a bad thing. It is hyper-polarization. It's polarization without dialogue. Yes. So polarization as a step into dialogue is not a bad thing. Polarization is a way of people saying, wait a minute, I need to say what I think. That's actually a positive step forward. So on some level, we, from the point of conflict resolution, we're able to encourage conflict and then turn it in a collaborative direction. Initially by listening, saying, oh, yes, I hear what you're saying. And now I hear what you're saying. How interesting. And now could the two of you talk to each other uh, about some elements that you have in common or whatever the approach might happen to be? But politics fundamentally is just social problem solving. That's all it is. Well, so <laughs> it should be, Ken. It should be. It should be. But in order for it to actually become that, um, there have to be conversations about difficult issues. Mm. So I think we need to encourage those dialogues. We need to be skillful and trained in dialogue facilitations. And I have facilitated those dialogues between Israelis and Palestinians and even Ukrainians and Russians many years ago. Mm. And it is miraculous what happens in the course of those conversations, just as it is miraculous in mediation, when people who hate each other all of a sudden figure out that they don't have to. Yeah, it is miraculous, Ken. You and I know that. And I think what is frustrating is that um, we, we're, we're sitting here with a, with a skill set, with a mindset, with a process that could help the world to transform could help this paradigm shift and we very much need to educate other people in how to understand and use these processes that we're both familiar with and, ha and have been working with for many years and you said and it was true for me when I started in mediation that it was a very new phenomena it was, it was something that was not practiced so we are um, and it has taken a while for it to to gain ground, uh, both in the legal profession and then it, it, even still in the business world, let alone to step into the world of politics. So we've got quite a step to take to take it there. I see a bit of a roadblock there. But nevertheless, I think the more people from the ground up who can understand and apply these skills in their own daily lives, in then in their businesses, then in their local communities we gradually begin to to build momentum maybe um, maybe we do start a revolution as you as you say ken <laughs> uh yeah the um i think that what the conflict revolution if you will consists of is bringing these uh higher order skills everywhere yeah and the there are as you say absolutely roadblocks all over the place and i don't think we've even confronted the worst of them yet because the more the closer that you get to any form of deep fundamental change the greater the resistance that's put up mm. because there are people who are frightened and mm. because there are people who feel that they will lose advantage and the reason they feel that they'll lose advantage is because they're still thinking in terms of a zero-sum game. So there's a pecking order. And am I going to lose my spot in the pecking order? But what we want is a, a, a something that doesn't have a pecking order. Mm -hmm. But then that sounds like it's completely chaotic, like it's messy and will be all over the place. Well, there are a variety of different ways in which we can demonstrate that that is not the case. And it's not what we're, I think, saying is not that there, there, there aren't roles for government in various ways, because there are various things that government can do, because on some level it represents a higher order of capacity 
in problem solving, but there is a difference between the state and civil society. Mm. And the state is a kind of, on some level, effort to control civil society and prevent it from becoming anarchic. But the difficulty is that when you eliminate all of anarchy, uh, you eliminate also all possibility of change. That's fascinating, Ken. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, I talk about the magic of conflict, and I think that's what you've just said. If If you remove all possibility of anarchy, you remove all possibility of change. So it's a balance somewhere, isn't there, between and you know, the, I think the word civilization or civility comes into it, doesn't it? And going yes. back to your sense of values, if you've got values at the heart of your dialogue and those values support civility and civilization, then you can have the dialogue uh, without the anarchy, maybe, or with the sufficient <laughs> with sufficient uh, tension, shall we say, to explore the possibilities, maybe. Yes, I think that there are two senses of the word civility. Mm. One is acting as though everything is okay and being polite and never really coming to terms with differences. Yes, I call Um, it a thin veneer of sociability. You're smiling on the outside, but angry on the inside. Exactly right. Exactly right. But I think the second form of civility goes back to the word civil, which doesn't just mean being polite, uh, it means a kind of society, uh, a a kind of ethos, if you will, or ethic. Yes. Um, And what I think we can see is that there are three fundamental layers to this. Layer number one is the layer of order, which is to establish the answer the solution and promote it and discourage anybody from opposing it mm-hmm. and to see your solution as being the one that is correct. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are times, particularly when chaos occurs around us, when people are inclined to autocrats and dictators because they sense the disorder and they don't know what else to do about it. But fundamentally, that kind of order is fragile. Mm. Uh, It pretends to be strong, but it's actually fragile because nobody is capable of knowing everything about every problem. And Um, also it's not supported by the people, is it? In fact, it's imposed on them rather than supported by them. Yes. Exactly right. So an opposite form Mm. uh, is what you could call the form of anarchy, if you will, which is everybody is... Uh, individualized and taking care of themselves and doing whatever it is that they believe can be done. And it's all, you know, completely voluntary. You can think of it in terms of children, you know, how you would raise children, either do it the way I tell you to, and you're, you know, you're in charge as the parent and they have to do exactly what you say, or um, the kind of hippie approach of just, you know, what the hell, whatever, do whatever you like. In between that is the complex form. And the complex form is a combination of leadership and self-management. Yes. And the difficulty is finding the that, that's a moving target. It's something that's fluctuating all the time. But what you want is a form of leadership, or if you will, For people who have some wisdom to be able to say what it is that they believe and have a a stage on which to speak. And the second is a sense in which um, the choice belongs to all of us. Mm -hmm. And that means each of us and it means all of us together. So what in in the United States, there was a woman whose name was Mary Parker Follett. I think I might have mentioned to her, her to you in our last conversation, and she was mm-hmm. uh, one of the founders of mediation. Yep. Uh, and the uh, let's see if I can find the quotation from her. The here we go. Uh, what she wrote in the 1920s 
and wrote really brilliantly about mediation, conflict resolution, uh, organizational democracy, but she also wrote about political change. And here's what she wrote. I just found the quote. Mm. It is not merely that we must be allowed to govern ourselves. We must learn how to govern ourselves. It is not only that we must be given free speech. We must learn a speech that is free. It is not only that we must invent machinery to get a social will expressed. We must invent machinery that will get a social will created. Fabulous. This is just brilliant. Mm. I think she just nailed it. Absolutely. And what we require is the invention of that machinery. Now, we happen to know some pieces of it. Mm. We know about the mediation piece. We know about the, the dialogue piece. But what we don't know about is um, how to do this in a culturally respectful and yet integrated way. Yes. Um, how to have it happen in China and also in India and also in Indonesia and Japan and Korea, both Koreas, and have it come out that people are able to really learn from their differences and turn them into advantage. Here's a nice little piece of, ma of mathematics, practical applied mathematics that is very interesting. Um, it's actually a set of experiments. If you take a large jar and fill it with jelly beans or any number of different things, small little objects. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you ask people how many there are in the jar. Yes. Do you know what the uh, closest to correct answer is? No, tell me, Ken. The answer is the average of everybody's guesses. Yes. Because some people will guess high and some people will guess low and some people will be more accurate, some with jelly beans and others will be more accurate with marbles or whatever, or rice, grains of rice or whatever. But the point of it is that out of the average comes some actual accuracy in understanding the problem. So Japanese will see a problem in one way, Chinese will see it in another way, Koreans will see it another way. Indians will see it another way, Indonesians another way. Out of the dialogue between those and the, and the search for consensus, the building of consensus, the creation of a mechanism, if you will, for building consensus, I think that's what we need. And it does exist, Ken, and you and I have trained in it and worked with it, and it does exist in some organizations, not many, but some organizations do effectively practice this way of being, if you like, it's really this next step. And I suppose where I'd like to, what I'd like to ask you as we as we close is to think this paradigm shift is happening. I mean, whether we like it or not, it's, ha it's happening, isn't it? Yes, it is. <laughs> what is your, do you have hope for the future? How do you see this playing out? Uh, uh, what is your hope for the future in 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 terms of what we've just discussed? H.G. Uh, Wells wrote uh, uh, probably over now 120 years ago um, that that uh, the future is kind of a race between uh, uh, our ability to handle problems and the complexity of those problems, something like that. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I think that there is hope because we actually have, as you have indicated, some of the tools that we need in order to really make this transition. Mm -hmm. We have them. We know them to be true. Yes. What we lack is the global perspective and the detailed orientation and the training and the ability of people to actually make this happen. Mm. But if we look at climate change, the clock is ticking on how disastrous this is going to be. But we can't do it by, uh, you know, just uh, sort of deciding somehow that uh, this is the way we want it to be. The, the hope 
has to is really a matter of work, if I can put it that way. So in the period of the 1960s, I'm thinking about this because I just wrote a chapter for a book on the experience of the civil rights movement in the South. And I was a part of that movement. Mm. And I worked in Southern Alabama, South Georgia, uh, various places under very difficult conditions. And at the time, the I did absolutely have hope, but my hope was limited. It was limited to the idea that, you know, people would be able to, you know, that uh, African-American people could walk down on a sidewalk and not be pushed off into the gutter as soon as a white person got on the sidewalk. I mean, simple things like that, having bathrooms, having schools, being able to sit where you want on a bus. Mm. The idea of there being an African-American president of the United States, frankly, I thought was utopian. I would have thought was utopian. I never even thought about it, never entertained the idea. And what we do know is that people can change incredibly rapidly once they see what the real problem is and what they need to do about it. This doesn't mean that there isn't resistance, which there always is. So there's always a kind of uh, need for some kind of struggle, but the struggle itself has to be conducted along the lines of the goal that you want to achieve. So it's not that there's whether there's an end reaches a certain, uh, whether a means reaches a certain end, every means has its own end. And the means that we have has its own end. Yeah. And I think that we are not going to get out of this easily. No. Um, I but guess. I do think that there, that it's so clear that what we need to do is to stop creating enemies and fighting among ourselves and live like human beings mm. uh, on the same planet as brothers and sisters to one another. Um, that need is so powerful and so patent and apparent that uh, every new crisis that arises, it reinforces this fundamental idea that we don't have to be suffering like this. So do you have a call to action then, Ken? Um, what would your call to action to listeners be? Because I think we do uh, live in this time of crisis and I'd be interested, I'm sure everybody would, to know what can I as an individual do in this time? Yes. Uh, actually, I've got a whole series of things. Here are some that I just wrote in the book that I'm writing right now, which is about the magic of mediation. Uh, and I think that there are, uh, I'll just mention a couple of them. I won't mention all of them. It is possible for us to, at the level of the United Nations, or at the level of local city government, or the, any level in between, it is possible for us to identify the sources of conflict within that organization, uh, clarify their causes, determine how much they cost, not only financially, but morally, emotionally, culturally, politically, environmentally, mm. um, and to make recommendations for improvement. Mm. Um, it is possible for us, if you could imagine, kind of running for political office, the difficulty with doing so is that you're trapped in a language um, that everyone has more or less accepted, and it's phony, totally phony, and beside the point, and essentially useless. So trying to figure out how to redesign the electoral process so that there are dialogues, real dialogues, not just between candidates, between but between people who are supporting candidates, telling the candidates what they want to see happen, those kinds of things. And I think that the most important one of these of all uh, is to build mediation programs into schools, mm -hmm. um, train every child from kindergarten through college in conflict resolutions uh, skills. I couldn't agree more. Yeah. And there are a whole bunches of others, multi-door courthouses, conducting dialogues over difficult uh, issues, uh, you know, having cabinet level uh, conflict resolution 
um, officers, whatever it may happen to be. Anyway, they, they, I think there are tens of thousands of things like that that we can do, including just helping to resolve conflicts that are between couples. Yes. Because this gives people courage and hope and a belief that it is possible for them um, to have a useful conversation about a disagreement, even if we're not successful. Fantastic, Ken. Thank you. And so, I mean, what I take away really is it's all about complexity and it's all about having conversations around that complexity and acknowledging that complexity that we've lost maybe the ability, but actually the will to have these conversations, that it's easier to avoid them or to allow them to be shut down. And perhaps we need to facilitate more dialogue, more debate. And I'm certainly up for doing that. Uh, Where do people find more about you, Ken? You have a website, you have many books I know that are available on Amazon, and I've got many of them myself. But uh, where can people find more about you if they'd like to connect with you? Uh, first, just a very quick thought about complexity. Yes. Uh, what complexity gives rise to is what is called emergent phenomenon. Mm. So that a waterfall is complex, a rainbow is complex. They are em- they emerge out of the complexity. It's a higher order of organization that emerges out of complexity. Mm. That's my hope. Yes. Uh, I have a website, which is uh, I haven't paid much attention to, unfortunately. Uh, it's uh, www.kencloak.com. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the books are all uh, available, I imagine. Uh, the one I'm working on is always my favorite. Which one? The one I'm working on is always oh, it's my your favorite. favorite. Uh, OK, so tell us when will that be published, Ken? Uh, well, I'm. I have two fa- chapters left to go, so I'm. I'm hoping by the end of the year. Fantastic, Ken. As always, an absolute pleasure. I've learned so much from you, but I think more than anything, I'm inspired and hopeful at a time which seems quite dark because we do feel that we're sliding into an abyss, maybe, uh, and that. But there is this hope for and even signs that we are able to take this paradigm shift and make it happen. So thank you for your time. Thank you for your inspiration once again, Ken. Thank you, Jane. Thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure. Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends and colleagues. Please do subscribe to the Barefoot Mediator podcast series. And if you would like to access my free video series for managing in times of change, challenge and crisis, and download a PDF copy of my book, How to Beat Bedlam in the Boardroom and Boredom in the Bedroom, please go to janegunn.co.uk slash video. The link is in the show notes.